0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind the days and nights.
1: My left eye sees pollution, those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning, clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill, fossil fuels are cheap wind and solar to steep, drill, baby drill, predefined, misaligned, polarized division, shuddered mind, worse than blind, 2020 vision. Hey, Dave. Doing great. I'm in football country, UTSA land, the Roadrunners.
0: Oh, amazing. Right? Top 25 team and just gave their head coach a 10-year extension. So, you know, maybe that's going to be a, the beginning of, of many
1: top 25 performances. I just, I, I feel sorry for all of our Baylor and a and and UT listeners. That, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a new sheriff in town. It's UTSA. So, um, you know, are we going to start sending our young to UTSA because of their football program and, and yeah. all the rest?
0: So you're dropping Alabama? Is that what I'm hearing?
1: No, no, I'm not dropping Alabama, but I. We're happy with the LSU
0: performance last week.
1: Oh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about you know how dirty some of their quarterbacks are when they get in the NFL. They start twisting ankles of Mm -hmm. defensive ends and all the rest. But
0: yeah,
1: yeah, but um, it's interesting. They're right. They are really right in our backyard right now. We're in an apartment on Highway 10. Uh, I think that 90% of the people who live in our apartment complex are UTSAers. So. Wow, um, not not uh, it's kind of an interesting bunch of twenty somethings, but uh, but anyway, they'll be happy. I'm gonna, I'm seeing a lot more of those uh, sweatshirts uh, around. I bet. Now we, we haven't had a
0: chance to talk about the the Braves' big World Series victory, so congratulations for that. I guess you know we both predicted it at the beginning of the season, so that's that's kind of fun. Two years in a row, uh, in my case, to predict the World Series champion. So you know you can ask me next March who it'll be. Next fall, I'll be happy to, right. to tell you.
1: I'm, but, uh, I'm going to Vegas again in January, Matt. So I'll get <laughs> okay. that from you. So we've gotten a couple We in Tampa Bay lightning. I mean, I know we have some NBA listeners who don't think that we're yeah. on the right track, but those, the Miami heat, as I've just predicted are on a roll as well. So yeah, uh-huh. watch out. We, we might just get rid of politics and philosophy altogether and just, you know, turn this into, you know, football, baseball, fantasy, you know, one of those types of shows.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of fantasy, we're matched up this week in our fantasy football league. It's a, it's a big matchup. You know, you're, if I can mention it, you're four and five outside looking in on the playoffs. I'm six Uh and three in a decent position, but uh, if I, if I win, that's going to put you in a tough spot, but if you win, you're right back in it. So this is, this is big.
1: I'll get Russell Wilson back this week. So that's a, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. That concerns me, but I've got Tyler Lockett. So uh, if he has a big game, maybe I'll okay, I'll benefit. Well, the other big event last week uh, which we haven't talked about yet is was the election and particularly the surprising republican win in in virginia uh, in the meantime the infrastructure bill passed that seemed to be in some ways a response to that election uh, the theory on the democratic side was that they needed to do something uh, they should have done something earlier to give call off a chance but what do you think about uh, Build Back Better, Dave, in light of the election results? Does that make it more likely to pass, less likely, or how, how do you see that going forward?
1: Well, I, I never like spending in the trillions uh, or you know, 1.3 or 4. Uh, I think that compared with the, the other uh, additional infrastructure bills, uh, this one's probably the best. It has more to do with building uh, than, than the others, so it actually has something to do with infrastructure. So I, I guess that's a that's a good thing uh, as margins, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I think that uh, the higher the debt goes, uh, the more um, inflation rages on these next three years. Uh, the more I think there's a great concern that you know, are we going to face you know six percent inflation over the next three years? And what what's happened when that's happened in the past? I think in the 1970s, and what what's around the corner thereafter stagflation, and is that you know where we want to be the next three to five years? Probably not. So uh, the bill I would I probably rate a, a C minus, uh, but it, it was much better than the F that uh, was was being proposed. And and my guess is, given some of these um, election results, that we probably won't have that larger World War II esque bill come through anytime soon.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be interesting because you know one of the things I would say that separates Republicans and Democrats is that Democrats tend to be willing to sacrifice their short-term political interest in order to do something big politically. So you look back and you think about some of those individuals, some of those moderate Democrats, you know, in the in those purple districts that voted for Obamacare and then lost, but they, they did all right. You know, you, you look at what like, like what happened next, right? Well, they get plugged into lobbying or they get plugged into kind of the network and nonprofits or what have you. They, they seem sometimes to be willing ideological purposes to lose the battle to win the war and so you know obamacare is on the books and it's not going anywhere apparently and if you lost your seat over that maybe you look back on that and say hey it was worth it because you know that that program is is there so the reason i bring that up is that i think it's it's a calculation that might be being made right now by certain individuals and you know you think coming off of that election result that some of those individuals in the moderate districts might say oh i don't know we want to vote for this And they're talking about getting the CBO numbers back and wanting to make sure that the math all adds up, but will they vote for it in the end? It wouldn't surprise me if they do, because their uh, ideological convictions might overcome their political ambitions, Um, knowing, again, there's often a soft landing for those that get voted out of office on the Democratic side.
1: Yeah, this goes back to something we've said a couple of times that uh, one of the best things about the Democratic Party with regard to its electorate is that it, it pays its electorate in hard currency. It, it actually yeah. does what it says it's going to do. And I think that if you can be well-treated thereafter uh, by uh, having your place in the ruling class reserved for you and, and whatever position it is, it opens up later on and can fulfill whatever your ideological vision of, of, of justice is, then you know it's a, it's a twofer. So uh, I, I'm not sure that that will be the case uh, this year. I, I think that 2022 is is looking like a Republican wipeout right now. I I, I think you know of the proportions of was it 1996 that uh, 94 were, yep. 94 you know, excuse me where there was a major shift and you know, it takes some time to get that Congress back. Uh, so yeah, I mean it, it'll happen, but you know w- would the Democrats want? a Republican-controlled Congress for the next 12, 14 years based upon pushing through $2 trillion in extra spending, maybe, perhaps. and, and uh, But I, I think that that's got to be a calculation that a lot of those moderate uh, congressmen in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and places of the sort will have to make. Uh, we'll, we'll see where they go. They're going to need everyone. Well, I don't want everyone, but they'll need a good uh, 20 to 30 um, individuals to come forward if they're going to do this. So.
0: Well, we'll talk more about the midterm at the end of the show when we get to the great book. But in the meantime, let's turn to Aristotle as we wrap up book three of the politics.
1: So in chapters 14 through 18, the end of book three, Aristotle goes through the different forms of royalty. And I'll mention each of them, and then we can talk about what is good or, or problematic about, about the five forms of royalty. The first that he mentions is, is interestingly, it's brought out of Homer's Iliad, the reference to Agamemnon where you have a a general uh, for life, that general has more power in war than they do in peace. So they can uh, order people off to to fight in war and to punish those who um, run away from the battlefield. But more often than not, uh, when it comes to an assembly, they have to listen to uh, what others are suggesting. I think this is interesting for us, uh, for those of us who read the, the Iliad, because really at the heart of the Iliad is... Achilles' anger and is the first kind of um, semblance of, an, of of a political assembly in all the literature of Western civilization. People coming together and making arguments for what justice is and, and what it's not. Uh, it doesn't work out well uh, for Achilles, but There there is this this reality that Agamemnon has to deal with that others may not share uh, his same definition of what is good, just, uh, and right. The second type of of royalty is another interesting type of royalty, uh, what we would know today as despotism. And despotism has the nature of of tyranny, excuse me, Aristotle would say. Uh, Why? Uh, Because the the tyrant rules over um, a people who are by nature slaves. So, in this form of despotic government, Aristotle is suggesting to us that there is a people ready-made for despotism. Uh, they, they tend to want to have despotic rule over them. They want to be ruled, which is kind of an interesting concept, I think, even when you think about uh, contemporary politics and, and democratic despotism. Do we want despotic government because we don't want to rule ourselves? The third type of royalty is dictatorship. He calls this also an elective tyranny. Uh, you find this type of royalty um, primarily among barbarians. Uh, it's legal, uh, and it's, it's really a, a matter of um, necessity. Uh, oftentimes, a dictator is called in to, to have royal rule in a time of battle. The fourth uh, type of royalty uh, is what he, what he says is a heroic royalty. It comes from heroic times where royalty was hereditary and legal, Likewise, it was exercised over willing uh, subjects, but it really kind of goes back to the beginning of regimes, the beginning of political communities where you had one or a few individuals uh, who Aristotle tells us were benefactors of their people uh, in either the arts or in the use of arms. And then the final uh, type of royalty that he mentions here is uh, the household royalty, where an individual would rule over the state, much like a, a father would rule over the household. So with those types of royalties listed here in part 14 of book three, it's it's interesting just on the front end to say that Aristotle is open to the prospect that the best type of rule may be the rule of one. I mean, there'll be issues with one person ruling, but you can have one individual rule well. What do you make of his characterization of these different types of royalty and his willingness to be open to the rule of one, Matt.
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly something that it's difficult for Americans at this date to wrap your mind around, right? because we we have this history, obviously, of of a rejection of monarchy, and and we see as we read back through history, uh, so many kings that that ruled badly, uh, and yet you know you can go through the pages of the scriptures, for example, and, and find. Uh, good kings and and kings under whom uh, the people of, of Israel or or of, of Judah after the separation between Israel and Judah prosper. So, you know, it's, it's not that it's impossible, uh, either theoretically or historically to have a one who can rule well, I think the difficulty is, it's difficult to have one who rules well, be succeeded by another one who rules well. And so as you're trying to establish a stable order over time,
1: Monarchy is a very difficult formula for that. Which is why I think in part 15, he brings into play another dimension uh, to this problem, whether it's more advantageous to be ruled by the best man or the best laws. Certainly, if you have the best laws in place, you're going to be able to tend toward that succession. And and likewise, if if you use the biblical example, you know, if the if the good leader is is ruling in accordance with God's will or God's law right that tends toward goodness but if that ruler that ruler could could at one point do that and at another point even in their own life you know not do that you think of solomon as an example of that but there you have god's law as a as a as a safety net uh, for that uh, regime but here he'll tell us that the advocates of royalty uh, maintain that the laws speak only in general terms and cannot provide for circumstances and that for any science to abide by written rules is absurd. Uh, In fact, the arguments being made here by Aristotle for those who argue that it's advantageous to be ruled by the best man is that the individual who has that prudence, who has that excellence, is going to be more likely to use prerogative in a way that is good for the regime. Here, when I was reading through this, I, I kept on thinking back to the Civil War and, Lincoln and, and Lincoln's approach to that war. Uh, what, what would you make of Lincoln on the subject of prerogative and this one man using that type of oversight?
0: Well, and I think it's very interesting the, the case of Lincoln because uh, there was nobody devoted more to the rule of law than Lincoln. And so you think about how carefully he was with you know, his most powerful and decisive and historically important act, the Emancipation Proclamation, to frame it in terms of his power as commander in chief to talk about it as a necessary wartime measure to do it just when he did and just how he did so that um, it was it was as lawful as, as it could be. Uh, and so, you know, yet you can look back at, at the things he did over the course of his time as president, beginning very early on and suspending the writ of habeas corpus uh, without Congress authorizing that before Congress was even meeting, after the war had begun. And, and all these things you can talk about gee, this really seems to be a violation of the Constitution. And yet Lincoln was really doing those things, ultimately, to preserve constitutional government. That was the ultimate end that was in view. And I think it's one of the realities that, that you deal with. You know, We're both in, in leadership positions where you're asked to um, make exceptions to policies, right? And I know that you know, good policy covers 99 or 98% of the cases, but it's always the case that there are situations that come up where the policy doesn't apply properly or or the result that of applying the p- policy properly would be, would be too harsh, uh, would be improper in some ultimate sense. And so it's good to have individuals who are able to exercise discretion within the boundaries of that set of policies, but those individuals themselves have to be accountable. And of course, Lincoln recognized that he was accountable, even that the Emancipation Proclamation could be struck down by the Supreme Court, for example, that he could be impeached or removed by Congress, he, he acknowledged those things and in some ways invited that scrutiny. And so I think the whole picture here of a legal regime that works most of the time, wise rulers who can step in, in the in the unusual cases, but who are also accountable for how they use that prerogative that discretionary power to others who are able to have a review of what they do to make sure it's not arbitrary or capricious.
1: Well, another thing I think about in American history on this point is the growth of pragmatism and legal pragmatism after the Civil War and yep. the argument that would be forwarded by individuals like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. that, that the role of the judge is to practice this prerogative uh, within the constraints of, of the law uh, that has been established and that seems to be a good thing if you have a judge who is truly pragmatic and, and truly respectful of the law, but what happens when the constraints of precedence, the constraints of, of law, the constraints kind of in the, in the very nature of pragmatism are loosened, that prerogative can turn into something else, and then you go from having a, a individual who Um, defers to a constitution to an individual who takes it upon himself or individuals who take it upon themselves uh, to put into place a living constitution, a living set of laws where that prerogative is the rule and there really is no rule of law at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, that's the great danger. And of course, where impeachment is not really a viable option, you know, we've not exercised that in any meaningful way as a restraint upon the Supreme Court. So Judges with a lifetime tenure and no real accountability can do quite a bit of damage if they get in their mind that it's their job to fix the Constitution or to reinterpret it rather than to simply give a a right application of it to the
1: circumstances that are before them. So the way that uh, Aerosol is going to move forward here is he's going to go back to an old formula that he's used that it would be a wonderful thing if you had many people who in assembly were ruling over a given issue, making a decision on a, on a given issue. But it's it's the reality of life that within an assembly, there's there certainly are individuals that are superior to others that are wiser or more prudent than others. So ideally, it would be great to have an assembly of people ruling together who are all wise and who are all prudent. Uh, but there are gifts that have been given to single people uh, that allow them to judge better uh, than the multitude. And that probably, um, and this is kind of another interesting thing that he says here, um, even though that individual may in that case be a better ruler than most that make up the multitude, the the thing you have to worry about most with any individual ruling is the corruption of that ruler. And this goes to this idea of, okay, if if you're going to make these decisions, there has to be a mechanism in place uh, whereby you can be removed from office if you abuse um, your office. He, he'll tell us here that the multitude is less susceptible to that type uh, of corruption, but he, he then, like here, pivots a little bit, and uh, I, I found this of, of particular importance, um, uh, especially within the, the wide range of things that are discussed in the politics, because this is a theme that makes its way up in, in I think every major political philosopher, from Plato uh, through you know Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke have given this kind of a narrative on regime change, how regimes came into being, where it started and and where you move from one regime to the next. If if you remember to uh, Plato's Republic uh, where uh, Socrates establishes the city and speech, this rule of the philosopher kings and then most of the second half of the Republic talks about the dissolution of that city and speech, how that best city uh, that is ruled by philosophers becomes a city that is ruled by the honorable, a democracy. The democracy in turn dissolves into an oligarchy, the rule of the wealthy, which in turn dissolves to a democracy, the rule of those who love freedom and equality. And and finally, uh, the end of the story is the rule of the tyrant uh, who loves power. So this um, this going from better to worse that really kind of scares uh, many of the readers about what can be done in politics. Aristotle gives his own take on this. So let me read through what he says on regime change. I'll take your... um, Reflection on that, Matt, afterwards, the first governments were kingships, probably for this reason, because of the old, when cities were small, men of eminent virtue were few. Further, they were made kings because they were benefactors, and benefits can only be bestowed by good men. But when many persons equal in merit arose, no longer enduring the preeminence of one, they desired to have a commonwealth and set up a constitution. The ruling class soon deteriorated and enriched themselves out of the public treasury. Riches became the path to honor, and so oligarchies naturally grew up. These passed into tyrannies and tyrannies into democracies, for love of gain in the ruling classes was always tending to diminish their number and so to strengthen the masses who, in the end, set up upon their masters and established democracies. Some cities have increased in size no other form of government appears to be any longer even easy to establish. So this narrative that he provides for us at the end of book three reads a lot like the narrative that Plato gives us uh, in in the Republic. I mean, different orderings of different regimes coming up, but that you start off with good um, benefactors. You then have more of them. Uh, They then become a ruling class. They then are corrupted uh, by wealth. Then the many uh, thereafter are corrupted by that same wealth uh, and you end up uh, with um, difficulties in, in governance. What do you make of this narrative?
0: Yeah, it is interesting, because in some ways, it does track nicely with with Plato. And the other, on the other hand, it's really meant to be more of a historical account, whereas Plato is giving us this idealized portrait of the city in speech and imagining what would happen as, as corruption uh, enters into that. And so here, Aristotle tells us, well, this might have actually happened. And this is how we end up where we are today. And I think you know, the, the last observation he makes is that um, no other form of government appears any longer to even easy to establish than democracy. And, you know, he's writing this 350 years before Christ uh, today. Uh, how much more true would that statement be? We, we can't really even conceive of a government being legitimate. That's not a democracy. Of course, we know there's non-democracies around the world, but but every one of those, we would say, well, we're waiting for that tyrant to die off or, uh, you know, for that regime to fall and, of course, be replaced by by a democracy. And, you know, we cheer when that happens and, you know, we we lament when it doesn't happen. So I think he's right that there's something about the organization of society in his day and all the more so in ours that makes democracy seemingly the the most natural fit for the the nature of peoples that we observe. And, and, and of course, that's going to lead us, as we move on in the politics, to want to take special care in our our reading and, and reflection on the problems of democracy as he, as he brings those forward, as we think about where that can go off the rails and how you can uh, try to work toward getting it back on the pathway to justice and the common good.
1: Yeah. And here, here he's going to double down on, on just what this corruption may have looked like historically, we calls it passion perverts the minds of rulers. And then the antidote is what he calls the law of reason. The law is reason unaffected by desire. And he uses the example of a physician, right, who, who wants to tend towards the betterment of the patient that he's working on. So there's, there's a law there. There's a, um, there's a recognition how the body works, what the body body's ailment is. But the best ruler will be like the physician who comes in, seeing where the body politic is sick, and trying to make it better by making its, um, its operations uh, more, more balanced, its operations um, uh, more uh, in line with the mean. And you know, this just kind of sets us up nicely for where we'll go into book four, where he'll take a look at all of the regimes that currently exist. And his attitude, his orientation as a philosopher, as a political philosopher, is to take the person, to take the body, uh, to take the regime as it is, uh, to see what's functioning well and what's not functioning well, uh, and then to make the case of what that body would need to become better. So you have to work with what is um, in in order to arrive at uh, what is better. Uh, The the perfect may not always, in most cases, is not what you're dealing with. You are dealing with a... A world that will tend towards uh, democratization. Uh, the the antidote right for that which ails democracy is not the, the greater rule of the multitude, but the better rule of the multitude, the more lawful rule of the multitude. So this this sets us up nicely um, for everything to come in in book four.
0: Yeah, the philosopher as as physician, I think it's it's a good model uh, diagnosing the, the disease, and of course. Uh, the reality is, as, as he points out, like, a physician is, is great um, because a physician is, in a normal case, an objective person who can look at the situation and, and see clearly. Right, that's, that's why the law is like the physician if it's done properly, because it's, it's reason apart from passion. On the other hand, as, as Plato and Aristotle both point out, um, you know, if, if your doctor were your enemy, <laughs> you wouldn't want the doctor to be diagnosing your condition. And so we recognize that uh, there's a need to examine the motives of individuals who are either uh, giving us political prescriptions. You think about some of the political writings that come out, um, editorial pages, other, otherwise. You know, what is it that's behind that? Is this an objective account of things or is this somebody who's got a ideological, partisan or other kind of interest involved? And, and how do we navigate the political realm where where we have to always be on guard against the interests and passions of even those that could otherwise be wise counselors ha- have the wisdom but may not have the character or the structure of interests to actually promote the common good in the end
1: so i think what you're trying to say matt is that we need philosophic physicians not physicians per se
0: yes that's right that's right uh, and and of course in the real life uh, world where philosophers themselves need to be philosophic <laughs> in order to be reliable right we have this is of course the difficulty in any account of of the rule of the one uh, you're, you're always beholden to the character of the one and where you have a person whose character is unimpeachable and whose judgment is always sound great um, but unless that king is christ you're not going to find anyone on earth. Who meets that criteria all the time.
1: Right. And I think the person or the model that Aristotle is putting forth for us in this work, the politics, is his own person. Right. And he is, Aristotle is not Christ. Aristotle is, um, you know, a probably the, the most surest philosopher, prudent, you know, in all the rest, but, but imperfect as well. I mean, we haven't agreed with everything that Aristotle has put forward. Um, And, you know, some things that he's put forward have been proven to be wrong. But I I think that his his orientation as a man as trying to be a physician is would be a good one uh, for philosophers to practice. It'd be great if physicians were more philosophic and philosophers uh, were more caring like physicians.
0: All right. Well, that'll take us up to book four beginning next week. Lots more to talk about there. We're going to wrap up the show with the grade book. And uh, this time, taking a little break from sports, we're going to look at politics. again last week we had the the big election there in New Jersey and Virginia in particular And you know you go back through the last several election cycles where you have a new president in office, that odd year election has been pretty important predictor of what was going to happen in the following midterm. So 2009 uh, Republicans picked up both the Virginia and New Jersey governor's races and then had huge gains in the 2010 midterm election, uh, 63 House seats, six Senate seats. So that was you know, year one and year two of President Obama's first term. And then 2017, obviously the first year of President Trump, Democrats uh, picked up a Senate seat in Alabama and New Jersey governor's seat, and then picked up 41 seats in the House, although Republicans did ne- get a net gain of two in the Senate. So that wasn't quite as decisive or one-sided a victory in the midterm in 2018. But, But even so, you can see there's this movement that tends to go from that first year, odd year election, these local elections, and a few state level elections as a good predictor of what's going to happen in the first midterm of a new president's administration. So, what we're going to do, rather than making predictions at this point, which are obviously a year out, is, is grade uh, the prospects of, of the two parties going into 2022. And, you know, their positioning as they've worked through this first year or so of the Biden administration, and we're less than a year out of this midterm election, how well are they positioned for 2022? So we're gonna start with the Democrats, Dave, and I'll get your grade on their posture and positioning for the midterm election.
1: Well, I think essential to the Democratic Party when it's had huge gains, when it's done well politically, is that it's had a strong leader whether that's Thomas Jefferson or Andrew Jackson or FDR, or at least on the surface, uh, John F. Kennedy. And then probably the the most recent example is is Bill Clinton. I think the greatest problem for the Democratic Party right now is that they don't have that leader. Uh, They don't have that leadership at the top that that can can smooth over differences between um, each of the wings of the the party. And I think because of that, um, they are really in a position to fail uh, between now and November, so they need someone to come forward and be that leader. Now, it'd be hard for that individual to come forward and, and assume a role uh, that technically should go to President Biden right now, but I think that needs to happen. There needs to be a voice within that party that kind of is carrying forth um, uh, their their agenda, and uh, I just don't think that that's going to come out of the Biden administration. I don't think it's going to come out of President Biden uh, because I think uh, whether it's just uh, his presentation is confusing or there's convolution or whatever that may be, that uh, it's just not there. The, the clarity is not there. So um, I think that they're in a position to fail right now, unless they get that leader.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, th- I think you know it's hard to imagine where that's going to come from. Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem well suited to that. Chuck Schumer, likewise. Uh, Kamala Harris has been sidelined, it seems, by the administration in many ways and has her own political faults and failings. So it's, it's kind of hard to imagine where that's going to come from. Um, and you know, in the, mean, in the meantime, as many have observed, they've essentially governed this year as if they won this big progressive victory when they've got the barest of majorities in the Senate and not much more than that in the House. Now, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning of the show. I, I do think that they're sometimes willing to sacrifice their electoral prospects for the sake of, of big policy victories. And so it wouldn't shock me if they find a way to get Manchin on board and get through the Build Back Better bill and, and then take their lumps in the midterm election, knowing that it's unlikely Republicans will be able to repeal those programs, you know, those big initiatives. And so even if they can't add any more to them, right? If every time they have control of the Congress, they add one more major project or program to the federal government and Republicans never repeal them, over time they're winning. Right. They're moving things in their direction. So I would give their electoral prospects a D, but their ideological prospects uh, a B or B+. Plus. How about on the Republican side, Dave? Well,
1: it's ironic if what I've just said is true. The Democratic Party is a party in need of a leader. The Republican Party, I believe, is in need of another leader. <laughs> and uh, the, the danger for it is that if, if it becomes a, a party that's simply about its leader, rather than about its principles then it's going to have its own um problems and i and i think the the problems deal with the personality of 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 the leader involved and and the the fact that that leader puts uh his own ambition his own glory uh, above the interest of the party and i think that uh, that 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 too is a danger and uh, i don't know um, how this will work out i mean you've seen a little bit of um, progress on this front where they're, you know, still a very strong uh, movement supporting a former President Trump and 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 wanting him to get back involved in 2024. And yet, there are individuals um, like what we saw in Virginia that, uh, on kind of common sense principle of of what we're for and what we're against and what we don't want uh, to come to be in the nation, are able to win a pretty solid election. So, I, I think that uh, the nature of the the news uh, in 2022, if Uh, economic indicators continue to move in the direction they are you continue to have this inflation you continue to have a democratic party um, that is moving too quickly uh, on some of these progressive fronts that's going to be a very um, ripe election for uh, a a gain of 50 60 seats in the congress uh, for republicans but they're just going to have to manage to run a campaign where they put their principle first rather than their allegiance to donald trump
0: yeah and i think you know There's some historical precedent, I think, here that might suggest that the influence of of Donald Trump will wane. You know, if you think back, maybe the best historical parallel is the 1960 election, which was, you know, hard fought, controversial. Of course, Nixon didn't react to the defeat the way that Trump did. But, you know, he was the most prominent Republican at that point. And in the early polling for the 64 nomination, he was the favorite. Uh, But then after he lost his attempt at California governor in 62, he just more or less disappears. And Nelson Nelson Rockefeller and then Barry Goldwater, of course, gets the nomination eventually. So, you know, you wonder if if Trump's power is already beginning to wane and if the way that Youngkin was able to win in Virginia kind of gives a little bit of a blueprint to those who want to move move past Donald Trump. And you know, looking back on it in a year or two, we're going to say, oh, well, you know, we we thought he was this still really powerful force within the party. But as it turns out, you know, that was for that absence of somebody else. And, And there was actually a vacuum there that could be filled by another candidate that was a fresher face and and maybe more unifying for the party moving forward.
1: Yeah, I think that there are many people who support supported President Trump who would support Youngkin's platform, and Virginia did support it, did come out and vote for it. So uh, there is room there, right, to to put forth a a Republican platform, some Republican principles uh, on governance that will appeal uh, to those who uh, who uh, favored um, and voted for and and um, and idolized in some cases the uh, the former president. Uh, it just has to be more about it. Has to be more about the principles than the man, and that's that'll be interesting to see whether or, that, or not that political education occurs yep. over this upcoming year, two years, three years, heading into twenty twenty
0: four. So that's why, on on that basis, I'd give the uh, Republicans about a B minus for their positioning at this point. They they need that leadership on ideas. They need an alternative vision. Um, you know, we don't want build back better fine, but what do we want in its place? Uh, there's some local issues that coalesced some state level issues that coalesced, some related to COVID and other areas, education in that Virginia campaign in particular, what's the national version of that? Is it you know, state by state? Is that the approach? Some kind of uh, coming together around a set of core principles and ideas, I think will be critical heading into that midterm.
1: So it's like a student in the middle of November who's got a solid B+. Plus but they could suffer from that Trumpian quiz that brings them down to a C plus. <laughs> yeah. But, uh.
0: Watch out for the pop quiz. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'm sure our, our listeners enjoy the politics talk. So we may get some more comments on this one. If you want to reach out to us and give us your thoughts, you can always contact us at at gmail.com. Uh, as always, we're grateful for you listening to the podcast and please remember to subscribe and review it on your favorite podcast platform. We'll look forward to being back with you next week. 2020 vision.